All right, you guys can grab a seat. If you are new, my name is Andrew. I serve here at the church as one of the pastors. Uh, and as we get started, I'm going to pray quickly and then we will jump in. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, all of us who get to be here and hear from you and your word. Um, God, I pray right now that for the next few minutes, God, you would give us sharp minds as we come to your word, that you'd give us soft hearts, that we would be able to be shaped by it, that you would lead us into worship. Um, Yeah, God, would you guide us? Would you send your spirit? We need you to believe the truth uh, that we're hearing today. So uh, just help us, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In Greek mythology, uh, there's a story of a titan named Atlas. And Atlas uh, was helping uh, lead this rebellion against the, the Olympians, which is the, the 12 uh, Greek gods in their, their deity structure. And, and Atlas and his Titan rebellion lost. And so afterwards, uh, he was given a, a job to perform as sort of a, a punishment uh, from the rebellion. And so his job from that point forward uh, was to go to the edge of the earth and upon his shoulders, uh, he would hold up the heavens. Uh, So in Greek mythology, their understanding is that the reason that uh, the heavens are where the heavens are and the earth is where the earth is and it's protected and separated and all of life can still function is because there's this Titan Atlas holding it upon his shoulders. As long as Titan, or as long as Atlas was there to hold this upon his shoulders, everything would be protected and secured. Now there's an old theologian, J.I. Packer, uh, who once said that it is this belief, this idea that we are going to read about today, this theological doctrine that we're going to talk about, uh, that this is Atlas for the Christian. That what we see in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, this idea, this belief is Atlas holding up all of our other beliefs. The idea that God saves sinners by grace and through faith is Atlas holding up all other evangelical beliefs. So every other theological doctrine, every other belief, every other practice that we had, Packer said, is weighted on, is held up by this belief. And if we lose this belief, if we lost Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, everything else in our Christian life would crumble. Now, I do get a little bit, uh, I don't know if you guys get this way, I get a little skeptical when I hear people say like, this is the main thing, or this is what all the Bible is about, is this one thing. Uh, But as I was studying it this week, I think it's somewhat hard to argue with Packer that if there is a main component, if there is an atlas to the Christian faith, it just might be that God saves sinners by grace through faith. So if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to just look at that simple couple sentences uh, in verses 8 and 9. And my hope is that if this is that important, if this is that core of a belief to us as Christians, um, that we wouldn't just glaze over this. That this wouldn't be something that we think, yeah, we've heard this before, but that God would actually press this into us. That as a church, this would become solidified in our souls. 
So that's my hope for this morning. And so all we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 8 and 9 and we're going to watch this kind of sentence unfold. That God saves sinners by grace through faith. And so first, uh, as we get into verse 8, if you're there in your Bible, I want us to first see that first part that God saves sinners. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved. If you've missed the last couple weeks because of all the snow, uh, the last two sections that we've looked at, verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7, are all getting at this idea of how we are saved, what salvation looks like. And here we're continuing on in that, and, and Paul's centering this idea on God saving sinners. Now, maybe you've asked a question like this. Maybe, uh, maybe, I don't know if you're a Christian in the room or not, or maybe you have a family member or friend who isn't a Christian. Uh, maybe you've asked this question, uh, what makes Christianity distinct? You know, like what, what, what makes Christianity or the Christian faith unique? Because if you're a Christian, if you believe in Christianity, that means there's a lot of things you don't believe in, right? There's certain things that you do believe in by being a Christian. And there's a lot of things you don't. And so I wonder what we would say to what is the, what is the kind of core of Christianity? What makes Christianity unique? What makes you a Christian? I think for many of us, we might say things like, um, what makes me a Christian is that I believe in God. Now that's true for the Christian, however, um, there's a lot of people groups and religions and people around the world that believe in a God, right? There's, there's people all over that wouldn't say they're Christians, but believe in some sort of God or supreme being. And so while we do believe in God, that, that doesn't really make Christianity unique. Uh, some of us might say things like, uh, I'm a Christian because I go to church, I, I worship, Right? Well, that's also true of Christianity, but there's a lot of religions that gather together. What we're doing here is we're a group of people that have a similarity and we come here to worship and to adore something. Well, there's mosques and there's temples and synagogues and all other sorts of things where people gather to worship. Heck, in our country, there's a ton of buildings that we call stadiums or arenas where people gather because they want to worship and love something that they're watching, right? I mean, just gathering together doesn't make us Christians. Some of us might say, uh, the Bible. I, I believe the Bible, and so that's what makes me a Christian. Well, you know, there's the, the Jewish faith believes in all of our Old Testament. There's other religions that believe in part or some of the Bible. So while we do, that doesn't make us a Christian. Some might say, I'm a Christian because my family was a Christian, or I'm American, or I'm from the West. All of that might be true of you, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You see, what's unique about Christianity is that it is a religion centered on God saving sinners. The thing that actually is unique, the thing that's different, is this idea that God saves sinners and how he does that. It's not primarily distinct because of its ethics, although we do have ethics, or its morality, how we treat people, although we do have morals. It's not distinct because of rituals, although we do have some rituals. Christianity is about, at its core, God saving sinners. It is the atlas of our faith. Christianity is a religion primarily about salvation. We saw in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter that you need 
rescuing. You need restoring. You need redeeming. You need relief. And in verses 4 through 7, Paul says God gives you forgiveness and new life and hope and refuge. So while a lot of people or religions in our world today may have an eye at the problem of the world. We may see that people aren't treating each other well or there's brokenness or something has gone wrong in our world. I would contend that there's really not an answer that's sufficient quite like Christianity. That while we are deceived and in sin, there's a God who saves. Now the last two weeks... Uh, we've kind of seen this process unfold. We've seen how we were dead and deceived and deserving of wrath. And, and last week, Jared talked to us about how God comes in and he kind of does this renovation project on us. He restores us to something. It's like a, a fixer-upper with a house that should be condemned. And God says, I'm going to make that into a masterpiece. That that's what God does. But our verses today are going to go one layer deeper And we're going to ask the question, how does he do that? If God is the one who saves sinners, how does he save sinners? So continue to look with me at verse 8, because we're going to see that while Christianity is unique because God saves sinners, it is unique in how he saves sinners. So first, he says right away that God saves by grace. He says, by grace... You have been saved. What's unique about Christianity is that it's a religion based on God saving by grace. So if you're in the room and verses four through seven, what we talked about last week, if that's true of you, you've believed in Jesus, you have new life, God has lavished grace on you, that, that you are no longer who you were, but you are made new. Paul is now going to reiterate, you moved from death to life, or you moved from shame to honor, or sinful to forgiven by grace. So I think for us, it's helpful to ask the question, what then does grace actually mean? We throw out the idea of grace a lot, and if this is how God saves, then it would be helpful for us to see, okay, how, or what does grace actually mean? So grace, by definition, is you receiving something that you did not deserve. You receiving something that you never earned or deserved. The uh, Rutgers University football team this last year went 1-11 over the year. And in Big Ten play, so all their conference games, they went 0-9. So they literally did not win one single game in Big Ten play. That means all year winless. Now to show Rutgers mercy might mean that we just don't really bring that up, right? We kind of gloss over it. We don't look at it. We don't shame them or laugh at them or whatever. We just kind of say, we're not going to talk about them. That's being merciful. Grace would be as if Ohio State, who won the Big Ten Championship, said we worked all year. We achieved this goal. We won the trophy. Grace would be them saying, and now we're going to give it to Rutgers. Literally the team that is least deserving. They did not win one single game. At no point in the year did they deserve to be a Big Ten champion. And grace would be Ohio State saying, we won it, we earned it, and now forevermore, 
it is going to go on your record as you winning it. All of our accomplishments are yours. Our records, yours. The trophy, yours. From this point forward, the 2018 Big Ten champion is Rutgers. That would be grace. Grace is logic defying. It does not make sense. And I would say there is literally not much more less logical than that scenario playing out. I mean, I can guarantee you that will never happen. That a college football team would go all year, win a championship, and say, we're going to give it to the team that did not win a single game. It is logic defying. However, I would argue that there is one more story that is more illogical than even that. And it's the story that's been unfolding about how there is a God who created the world and created human beings as his prized possession. In all the world, he forms humans and he says, I'm going to have a special love for them. There's going to be a special relationship that I have with these people. As they multiply and fill the earth, I am going to be with them. They are going to know me. The king of kings is going to have a special relationship with humans. However, the Bible continues on and the story goes that every single human, including you and I, have not said, thank you, we received that but said, no, thank you. We've said, we do not want to be in relationship with you. We do not want to follow you. We do not want to worship you. And so we have gone our own way. Ephesians 2 says that means we are dead in our sins. Romans 5 goes so far to say that because of that, all humankind are enemies of God. That's, that's, that's war language, Right, So picture a king creating this whole army for himself and all the army starts to form this treasonous coup saying, hey, we're no longer going to follow the king. We're actually going to fight the king. We're not going to do what he says. We're going to run and do our own thing. We are the enemies of God. Yet the story continues that God would send his own son Jesus to do the very thing that you couldn't do and that you wouldn't do, which is follow God and be with him wholly. He obeyed God perfectly. He enjoyed God magnificently. He worshiped God wholeheartedly. Everything that you were meant to do, Jesus did. And because of all of that, humans decided, let's kill him. And so Jesus goes on the tree, they crucify him, and humans shed his blood, take his last breath, and they put him in a cave, roll a stone over it to bury him and seal him forever. Yet three days later, we know the story goes that he would rise in victory and in power, and because of his perfect life, he earned the right to be risen from the dead, to gain all victory over Satan, sin, and death, the very enemies that you and I had. And in the most logic-defying move in all of history, he said, I did all of that for you. It would be Ohio State winning that championship, finally having that victory, turning around and saying, okay, now it's Rutgers. That all of what God has done has been grace through Jesus on your behalf. So if you've ever wondered, really, very practically, how is my shame removed from me? How is my sin taken care of? How are all of my mistakes fixed? 
I would urge you to just simply stare at the cross of Jesus Christ. God's grace is not an ethereal characteristic. It is tangible in what Jesus Christ has done for us. God giving you grace is through what Jesus has done. If you want to know how you receive life or honor, power, freedom from your addictions and the chains, look no further than the empty tomb. The perfect life of Jesus created the empty tomb. He rose again from the dead and in grace said, it is yours. This is how God saves sinners like you and me. And I love that as this verse goes on, I think Paul wants to make sure, because it's so illogical, it's logic defying, he tells you it's by grace you have been saved, but then in verse 9, he kind of loops back around to give you the negative side of that, just to make sure that we really get this. Look at verse 9. He says um, that this, the salvation by grace, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. So he's saying, hey, you were saved by grace. And if that doesn't make sense, it is not by your works. He's reiterating both in the positive and the negative. You are saved simply by grace. So before we move on this morning, I, I just want to ask you, if you truly at the core of who you are believe that. You know, some of you, if you've been around the church, I know that it's pretty easy to just say kind of in hearty, amen, sure, we're saved by grace. It says it right there. But if you actually examine your heart and your life, do you believe that you were saved by grace, not by any of your works or deeds? You know, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to um, who would say they're a Christian, and I, and I ask them, you know, why they say that or what they believe in, and I just get a list of why well, I did this and I've done this, and I've been to this camp, and I went to this school, and I was raised in this church. And I think a common misconception for us as a culture sometimes is that Christianity is about God saving people by works through merit. You know, not so much that we're sinners, because we're generally good people, and, and kind of by grace, but really through a lot of my good works. And so I think that God saves generally good people that are doing generally good things. I think that's a common belief we have. And even in the church, while we may say Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I think there's a temptation to believe. I, I'm saved by grace, but you know, I also was in church, and I was in my Bible studies, and I have been reading my Bible every day, and I've been doing X, Y, and Z. Now, if that's you this morning, I, I have prayed this week that you would hear, not me, not even Paul, but God saved from this passage, it is by grace that you are saved. It is not by your works, it is not by your deeds, it's not by your Bible studies or your church attendance, it is by grace that you have been saved. It does not have anything to do with the amount of deeds you've done, your personality, your skill set, your skin color, your IQ, anything else. It does not have to do with works, it is by Grace. It doesn't matter if the last two years you've been in Bible studies or jail cells, you are saved the same by grace. So I hope that we can hear Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it is by grace. Now, a quick note of application, because I believe that there are a lot of people in the room that do believe this, that you believe that it is by grace I've been saved. I want to ask us to reflect for a second that as a church, if our souls 
are saved by grace are our lives marked by grace. So think, if, if you say, I am saved by grace, my soul has been taken care of by grace, could we tell that from our lives? Could we say that we are grace-filled, just radically, instantly gracious in our lives? Because I would say one of the, the markers of you being able to tell how well we understand God's grace is how well we actually show grace to others. And I know that for us, especially in our society, we're a very kind of justice-driven society here. And so uh, I know that it's hard for us sometimes because we think, well, I don't want to be a doormat, right? I don't want to let people just run all over me. Like, God cares about justice, so we need to be just. And, and because I think that's most of our propensity, I feel okay saying that while that's true, uh, what if in the midst of a justice-driven society, we were a little light of just radical, logic-defying grace. That when people wronged you, instantly grace. And when people say something against you, instantly grace. That when you see things going on that might hurt you, your first response would be grace. What would it be like in Omaha if we had a little church here that was just radically grace-filled and gracious to others? I wonder what it would be like if instead of us being justice hunters, we were logic defiers that we're just illogical in the amount of grace that we showed because there is nothing more illogical than the grace God showed us. It's by grace that we have been saved. So if, if God saves sinners by grace, um, there's one more little prepositional phrase on that sentence um, that's tiny but I think massive. Uh, because if I ended at this point, if I just prayed and we said, okay, God saves sinners by grace, I think a common question that you should maybe be asking at that point is, okay, well, it doesn't matter what we do. God saves people by grace. Jesus died on the cross. So does that then mean that everyone is saved? Like if it's just God's grace to anyone and it doesn't matter what you do, then are we all saved? Is everyone in the world saved? Well, I don't think so because Paul adds this one tiny but massively important phrase. He says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. Peter O'Brien wrote that uh, about this verse. He said, that additional phrase, through faith, is the inseparable companion of by grace. He says it's, it's inseparable. That the idea of God's grace on people's lives, it, it cannot be separated from the second phrase, that is applied through faith. This means that grace is only applied to you and your life and it covers your sins and gives you new life when you have faith. So while grace denies any works that you do to deserve it, it is only applied to you when there is faith. So that means that not everyone is saved. Not all people are saved no matter what because grace is applied through faith. Now how do we how do we get that faith? How is that uh, built up inside of us? Well, again, he goes on at the end of this verse to say this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And what I think he's saying there is when he says it is a gift of God, I think he's referring to all that we've just said. So God saves sinners by grace 
through faith. And all of that, all of salvation is not from you. It is a gift of God, which means the faith that you have to believe in God's grace was not even drummed up inside of you. It was given to you as a gift by God. Which means that you were just, you're not a Christian because you were smart enough to choose God. You're not a Christian because you were gullible enough to just fall into this Christianity thing. You're not a Christian because you have the right amount of faith that you've measured up. You're a Christian because God has gifted you faith, which has applied grace to your life. God saves sinners by grace through faith, and that is not by works. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So just think about how crazy that is. What part did you play in your salvation? Well, even the faith that you needed to receive salvation was given to you by God. God has done it all. God sent Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He paid your punishment. He rose again. He gives you grace. And even the faith that you have to believe all of that, Paul says, was a gift of God to you. So, similarly with grace, I think before we end, we should ask, okay, if that's true, um, then what exactly is this type of faith? How do I know if I have the right faith? How do I know if I have enough faith? I was hanging out with some of our college students this last week, and uh, one of them asked this question that I thought was pretty insightful. He said, um, how can we measure our faith? How do we know if we kind of have enough faith? How do we know if in our life the amount of faith that we have is, is good enough, essentially? And I think that's a question we should maybe ask of this verse. If, if all of salvation is by grace and through our faith, then what does that faith actually mean? Well, the faith that we see here, uh, I think, is not simply a, a, an intellectual assent to something. Right? We said before, just a belief in God of saying that I believe God is real is, is not real faith that we're talking about. On the flip side... This faith is not just about any emotional whim or feeling that you have. The faith that we have in God is not just mental, but it's also not just emotional. Your salvation is not predicated on if you're feeling it that week or if that day you have enough of it to kind of sustain any of the bad emotions or feelings. It's something different. I think true saving faith that we see in this chapter is really more about the idea of trust. It's not just a mental idea. It's not just an emotional feeling. It's a life lived of trust. Now here's the thing. I know that a lot of people could say or speak into Christianity or the church that would say Christianity is a religion about kind of blind faith. That's what Christianity is about. Other things like science and other worldviews are about reason and rationality and truth and data and logic, but Christianity is just this kind of faith. Well, I would contend if we understand faith as the idea of just trust, then everybody, all the time, every day, is living out of some sort of faith. Let me give you a few examples. And I'm not going to give you big examples, but just very mundane things to see that we all live by Faith. So first, you uh, walked in here this morning, right at 11, you went over, you grabbed some coffee, you got a donut, you came over here, and all of you sat down in that chair, and you did that because you had faith 
that it would hold you. Now, almost none of you, probably none of you, really even thought through, I wonder if this chair will hold me. I guarantee you that none of you did a scientific check to make sure all the screws are in, that the seat is all bolted down, and then you sat down. You just simply operated under the assumption and the faith that that chair would hold you. Now, when we're done here, you're going to walk out and you're going to go to your car. Uh, and not now because I said this, but if I wouldn't have said this, you probably would have gone out to the car and without thinking, you would have got in, you would have turned the ignition and you had faith that that car was going to start. I'm assuming you didn't know the future, so you don't know that it will start, but you just didn't even think about it. You just had faith that it would start. Or maybe you're a college student with a bad car and you are operating there. You don't have faith that it will start, but there's something in you that you don't know the future, but you're going to go out there and you're going to turn the ignition because you have faith that it will. Tomorrow, you're going to go to work and you have faith that your job is still going to be there tomorrow. And you're going to get there and you're going to open your computer or your phone or whatever, and you have faith that that computer is going to turn on that your documents are going to be saved there, that whatever you need to do to work there is going to be there, and all of that is faith. Now again, I'm intentionally giving you very mundane examples because I want you to see that faith is about worldviews and religion and big picture things, but faith is something that we do constantly. We are constantly acting out of faith. But here's the thing with all those examples. It really doesn't matter how much faith you had in that chair. You could have walked in and you could have the utmost amount of faith. You could just walk in, sit down, and have complete faith that that thing was going to stay. And if it didn't have its screws, it didn't matter how much faith you had. The object of your faith was unreliable. It doesn't matter if you go out to your car and you have utter faith that this car is going to start. If something's wrong with it, it's not going to start. You could have absolutely very a little amount of faith and it might start right up. It doesn't matter how much faith you had. It just simply matters that you trusted it enough to do it and then how reliable the object is. See, when Paul's talking about faith here, He's saying that it's not about the measurement of your faith. You could have the tiniest little bit of faith or you could walk with complete, utter faith day in and day out. What matters is if the object of your faith is reliable. And what Paul is going to say here is that God saves sinners by faith in Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, he's been telling us in Ephesians that it is reliable. That your faith will be found valid, not because you have a lot of it, but because the object of your faith is strong enough to hold it. When God gives you faith, you could have the mustard seed size of faith. And if it's in Jesus, Paul says you can know that it is reliable. Let me end with a, a quick story. Because if God saves sinners by grace through faith... Um, this should create in us a complete and utter humility. Uh, what we've been looking at through Ephesians chapter 2 is just, just completely humbling. There's been nothing that we have done. We were dead in our sins. He has made us alive and seated us with Christ. And all of this, Paul says, has only happened by grace through faith. God has done it. Now there's a, a story of, uh, I read this week, of a church in England years ago 
there was a pastor, and uh, he was preaching, and afterwards they were taking communion, and so they had the kind of traditional where they had the kneeling thing, and so you come forward and you kneel down at the table, and uh, he noticed that a guy came forward, he kneeled down, and it was a, a judge, a Supreme Court of England judge that was there sitting down. Right next to him, another man came up, and the pastor noticed that this guy uh, had just recently got out of prison. He had been in jail almost his entire life for various different things. He'd get out and go back in, get out and go back in. And the last time, this judge was the one that sentenced him to jail. And when he went to jail, he actually became a Christian. And so he got out and now he's a part of this church and he comes forward and the judge and the convict are sitting right there taking communion together. Now, after the service is over, um, the pastor was talking to the judge and uh, the judge kind of uh, sheepishly said, you know, did you... You see who was you know, next to me? The pastor said, yeah, I saw. And the judge kind of looked down for a moment, shook his head, and said, man, what a miracle of grace. Now, the, the pastor, thinking that the judge is talking about the convict, says, yeah, you know, like, he's had this crazy kind of radical transformation. It's just amazing to see. And the judge kind of shot a look at him and said, wait, who are you referring to? He said, well, the, the, the convict, the guy who just got out of jail. And the judge shook his head. He said, no. He said, while it is a miracle that this man is now saved, he said he grew up knowing that he was a rebel. He knew that he needed something to save him. He saw the problems in his life. He said, I could not believe that I was sitting at the same table experiencing the same grace, that even I, who he said hasn't done almost anything wrong my entire life, my record is spotless, I went to Oxford, I'm a Supreme Court judge, and just like him, I'm sitting at the same table, and God has shown me grace just like he has shown him grace. See, this is what's unique about Christianity, that it doesn't matter if you're a judge or a convict. It doesn't matter if you're self-righteous or self-abusing. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. The thing that's distinct about Christianity is that we all come to the same exact table. We all come to the same place, and we receive salvation by grace through faith. And so here in a moment, we're going to be taking communion. And when we take communion, uh, I want us to sit in this for a second. This idea that, that we come forward to take communion by grace and through faith. You do not walk forward down these aisles on a trail of your good works. That is not the entrance into communion. And you are not hindered from walking forward by the obstacles of your mistakes. That is not the entrance exam. There's no kind of VIP and special entrance for good kids and other people kind of slowly maybe make their way. We all come simply by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's where judges and convicts, where the righteous and unrighteous can sit together, can dine together at the table of Jesus Christ because we've all experienced grace through faith. And so as you come forward here in a moment... um, There's an old hymn called Rock of Ages, and I love one of the lines in it. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I would ask, if you're a believer in Jesus, I mean, there's not much more symbolic that kind of shows us that line than when you come forward for communion, you literally come forward empty-handed. You come forward with nothing. You walk forward towards Christ with nothing in your hands. You do not come with your resume, your church card, or anything else. You come forward empty-handed. And when you take the bread 
and you dip it in the juice and you have that. You are clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. You are saying that I did not come forward with things in my hands, but I am now empowered by the work and the grace of Jesus. And it is for all who place their faith in him. doesn't matter what you've done. All that matters is that your faith is in Christ. And so I would ask, if that's you this morning, if you believe that, maybe for the first time this morning that you really understand that you are saved by grace, that here in a moment you would come forward and you would be thinking about how you come forward with an empty hand, but you have received the grace of Jesus Christ in this communion. So I'm going to pray. Communion service, you can come forward right now. Band, you can come up. I'm going to pray. And then whenever you feel ready, you can come forward to take communion. Father God, I thank you that you are a God that saves sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like us, that are not here because we are righteous enough. That we're not here because we are good enough. We're not here because we're smart enough. We are here humbly just saying we have nothing in our hands to offer, but you've given us grace. I pray right now for for anyone in the room with a, a hardened heart towards this, with an apathetic heart, or a sleepy heart, God, would you wake us up? Would you help us to see this and believe this? This is not coming from just pure logic. Grace is logic defying. We need your spirit to help us believe this. So would you do that now? Would your spirit come and would you help us believe that it is good and it is right and it is better for us to be with you than anything else? So God, would you help us now? Would you help us come forward as we take communion of people that have had good weeks and bad weeks, who have had big screw-ups and little screw-ups, but of people that have in common that we are here by grace through faith.